The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be verses 11 through 21 today. That finishes out chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to kind of frame our time in the Word today with an illustration, but I need your help, okay? So I need some brave souls in here, some courageous souls. This is all I want from you. Just shout out your favorite food at me. Now, hold on a second. I want you to shout out your favorite food at me, and here's why this, it's okay, man. There's not a right and wrong answer here. I just want to know your favorite food, so it can be anything. And don't worry if there's repeats. If someone shouts out your food, you know, if you're, a, if you're a macaroni and cheese, man, and someone else already said it, you go ahead and say it again. So go ahead. Somebody shout out their favorite food to me. Let me hear it. French fries. Okay, that's a very healthy choice. That's awesome. What else did I hear? Barbecued pork. I can get with that. Anybody else? Steak. Tacos. 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 How many? Let me just see a raise of hands if tacos is your thing. I just need to see where my people are. Okay, praise God. Now, I'm going to Mexico this week to build a house for a homeless family to the glory of God, first and foremost. But up close to the top of my priorities is also tacos. Fried chicken, that's delicious. Yes, okay. Anybody else really feeling froggy about saying their favorite food? Go ahead. Whatever Mary Barnabas makes. Bless God for Mary Barnabas and everything that comes out of her kitchen to the glory of God, yes. And amen. Okay. So there, we got a good variety there. That shows the beauty of the diversity of body of Christ. We got stuff all over the place. We don't all like the same food. Amen. Uh, but that's not the illustration. Here's the illustration. <clears throat> How many of you, if someone offered to make or buy that favorite meal for you, right? How many of you with that opportunity would respond with something like, ah, you know what? No thanks. I, I don't, I don't want to eat that. I've already had that. I've had that before. Anybody? I mean, that's your favorite food, right? It would, that would be, that would be a, a pretty silly goose response, wouldn't it? If somebody said, hey man, I'm going to buy you that favorite meal. Let's say it's at a restaurant or I'm going to make that meal for you. Ah, I've had it before. That's not the way we respond to that. And here's why I'm saying that. I want you to fight against today a tendency we have to do that very thing with the lavish spiritual meal of Christ's gospel. Because sometimes we do that. Sometimes we think we've heard it so much, we've had it so much, that we, eh, I've already had that. I've already tasted that. We can't do that. We are a gospel-centered church. And so what does that mean? That means that we believe the entire scriptures are pointing us to the gospel. We believe the whole Old Testament is pointing us forward to Christ's coming and his gospel. We believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is laying out for us the events of God's fulfilled promise in sending Christ to live and to die in our place and to rise from the grave. And we believe Acts through Revelation then is teaching us how to live in light of the fact that Jesus came and did what was promised. We are gospel-centered. And what that means is each week we're getting at least a, a couple good mouthfuls of that Rich gospel goodness. That's happening here every week because that's what we believe the Bible would point us to. But this week, this week, we are sitting down 
to a Viking-sized banquet table piled high with this most delicious and nourishing spiritual food. We've got to think right about this, friends. The gospel is not the appetizer. It's, it's not just the first course that opens you up to getting into the, the really good stuff after it. The gospel is the spiritual meal of all meals. It is the eternal main course which we will forever savor and we should never tire of its flavor. Peter said that angels even long to look into the depth and beauty and mystery of the gospel. Angels have seen more about it than you have. There's room for us to still be enamored, to be overwhelmed, to be overcome. As we'll see today, the gospel is not a one and done type of truth. Believing it is not a single event and we will never exhaust its beauty or majesty or comprehend all of its mystery. To think that you've fully experienced and explored all of its depth, to think that is a great sign you've only begun to scratch the surface. Because the further you peer into this well of living water, the more you realize it is deeper than you could ever understand. Every week here, you can know this for sure, we're coming to that well of living water that is Christ's gospel. And we're gonna draw up buckets and we're gonna drink from it. Here's what I'm trying to tell you is happening this week. We're, we're drawing the bucket up, setting it aside, and we're about to jump in this bad boy and swim, okay? Amen. I'm excited and I want you to be. That's what this was all about. That's what this whole intro was. I want you to know this. Many who feel stuck in their faith or in their battle with sin, they make the mistake of thinking it is, it is more or new truth that they need to move that needle. But the gospel's application, it stretches into every single part of your existence. And it is often, it's, it's understanding that reality that's the missing piece of the puzzle that keeps people stuck. It's tragic when people are frantically looking for some new thing to help when the thing they needed all along was right in front of them. It just needed to be thought about more, meditated upon more, chewed on more, if we stick with the meal analogy. And because we're going to be so deep in this well this week, for, for those of you that may be new here or new to the scriptures and or some of these ideas, I want to just take a moment to make very plain before we read these scriptures what the gospel is. Gospel, at its, in its most simple form, that means good news. It's the good news about Jesus. For us, we have a strong conviction here that the good news about Jesus doesn't make any sense if we don't first relay the bad news about us. The bad news, according to the Bible, is that we, all of us, are sinners by nature and choice, that we are dead in our sins, that the wages of sin is death, and we've all earned that wage. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news. The good news is that though we've earned for ourselves the wage of death, that Jesus came and earned the wage of life. And what he asks in order to hand that to us is simply that we will believe him and trust him. That is the good news of the gospel. That we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that is right on the nose of what we're about to read. So let's do that. Let's read Galatians 2, 11 through 21 together. 
But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. And when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith, in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Praise God for his word. Amen. Whew, that tastes good already. I can sit down. Now, let's go back to verse 11. I, I want to I just call out this reality. This is probably one of those places Peter was talking about that Paul's writings can be hard to understand. Okay, There's elements of this that are a little wonky, particularly to our ears, but even in general. And part of it is because the gospel is a little wonky. The gospel is a truth that is not that easy to grasp. But at one level, sure, there's a simplicity to it that even a child can understand it. But when, when you really start to look at its, its breadth and depth, uh, man, it can, it, can, it, can, it can escape our grasp at times. Even, even when we've been believing it, thinking about it, um, trying to live in light of it for a long time. Uh, case in point, my man Peter, right? So let's, let's make sure, like, like if, if my... If, if what I thought was a dashing, eloquent uh, beginning here to try to convince you that you need this, no matter how well you think you know the gospel, let, let me be very frank about this. Peter <laughs> lost his grip, okay? So let's know that we can too, and we do. This is, it's not a one-time thing believing the gospel. There's a, there's a constant wrestling to it, and we have to know there's a bent in our hearts and an enemy Constantly trying to pull us away from the beautiful truth, the freedom that comes in walking in light of Christ's gospel. Amen. Verse 11, uh, let's start back there. So it says, when Peter came to Antioch. So remember, last week, we were talking about the Jerusalem council. Paul went to Jerusalem, okay? Now we got Peter coming to Antioch, all right? Antioch is, is the first place that followers of Jesus were called Christians. Uh, we see that recorded in the book of Acts. And this was, in one sense, a home base for Paul, okay? Paul had spent a lot of time here, and he launched from here uh, onto missionary journeys. So this is like Paul's home turf a little bit. Uh, you know, he didn't stay anywhere a whole long time, but this was a place where he had spent uh, quite a bit of, of energy and time, okay? So 
<clears throat> that kind of gives us the, the context of where we're at. Verse 12, <clears throat> it says, For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. And when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Okay? Let me, I, I don't want to assume everybody has been here thus far. So let's kind of quickly summarize the conflict here, okay? You'll, you'll see through here a word, you'll see the word Gentile, okay? What that means is somebody that was not of Jewish descent, not of the descendants of Abraham, okay? So the Jewish people considered everybody that wasn't, you know, of Abraham's seed to be Gentiles, okay? But what you had here is a dynamic where you had folks that were ethnically Jewish and folks that were not all coming to believe the same gospel. But there was confusion around that because there was a particular sect here they referred to as the party of circumcision. As I explained to you, uh, really every week thus far, we've had to touch this and, and lay it out. What these guys believed was that you couldn't be a follower of Jesus unless you were first religiously Jewish. You needed to, yes, you did need to believe in Christ, but, and you did need to trust him, but you also needed to adhere to the Old Testament law, not only its moral requirements, but its ceremonial requirements, its dietary restrictions, all of it, okay? And, that, that is, and, and a flashpoint for that belief was they thought everyone needed to be circumcised because that was the covenant sign back with Abraham in Genesis, okay? So in I know some of you are like, yeah, man, you've said that every week, but I gotta make sure everyone knows where we're at or this is gonna be tough to grab, okay? So here's one thing I do wanna say. It says that these guys came from James, Theologians debate this. My, my personal sense is that I, I think these guys were likely misinterpreting James. I don't believe what's happening here is that James, the apostle, is sending these guys like with his, them, him knowing what they're doing and, and with his seal of approval. And, and why do I say that? Well, a couple reasons. One, we just saw in verse two, or, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, okay, last week, that you had at this Jerusalem council where Paul came to say, all right, let's make sure we're lined up here on what the gospel is, right? You had three pillars of the church, those, those Jerusalem apostles mentioned that were there. You had John, you had Peter, and you had James, right? He was there for this discussion and agreed along with the rest that the core truth of Christianity was that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, okay? So I don't think James was a Judaizer. But I could see how, because of the emphasis of James' ministry, and how do I know that? Well, because he wrote a book, right? It's the book of James. So what did James actually teach? Well, in James 2, he makes this, this argument for this reality, that faith without works is dead, okay? And that's, this is a great example of how some, sometimes how slippery the gospel can be, not because the gospel itself is so slippery, but our, our hands are feeble, <laughs> so to speak, in, in, in our ability to hold on to it. Because people hear faith without works is dead, and they think, oh, okay. So what that means is I need faith plus works in order for the faith to be valid, in order for the faith to do what it is purported to do, which is to save, right? But that's not at all what James is teaching. If you read carefully what he teaches, he's saying that genuine faith is always going to be followed by works, right? That's what we talked about last week. We read Matthew 25, and this, you know, expanding on that idea of remembering the poor. And I told you, let's not get this confused. Remembering the poor and caring for the poor, that is not going to save you. It will not. But 
if you have been taken from the depths of spiritual poverty and raised up to royalty by Christ, if that's genuinely happened, there's going to be a care for the poor. Genuine followers of Jesus are going to remember the poor and care for them. Amen. Praise God. Now, but, so, but, but that seems to be an empty, nobody, nobody else really got into that as deep as we see it in the book of James. That's why oftentimes people think because of what we see here recorded in Galatians and the emphasis and tone difference between Paul and James, there's, there's some that think, you know, these guys, we should have put them in a boxing ring and, and whoever won, their doctrine got to win, right? No, no, no. They had the same doctrine. They talked about it at the Jerusalem council, right? They, they were in agreement on what the core of the faith is, Right? Amen. So, I don't think, when he says they're of James, I, th- I think these guys really, they were misinterpreting James and probably kind of using, they may have had relational connection to James. They may have, may have even been followers. I heard one commentary I read used this example. He's like, it's not uncommon for, uh, in like a military uh, context, for lieutenants to kind of overzealously or, or misappropriate what a general has said. For them to leave what the office where the general gave orders and then for them to go out and do something just slightly different than what the general actually said. And that's probably what we have going on here. I don't know if you've ever had it happen to you where you've said something and then somebody thought they heard you say something and then went and repeated that a different way. I mean, that's the old telephone game. So people do that, especially when they really think, uh, they really want you to think what they think. They, they are really hoping you'll say what they want you to say. Um, and I think that's a lot of what was happening here. So in any case, but because we got these dinguses, okay, from the party of the circumcision and the trouble they may cause, what we see is Peter pandering to their busted theological ideas, all right? This, this can be characterized in, in a summary form this way. The Judaizers believed that, here, here's, here's the order of how things work. You believe, you obey, and you're saved. Here's the gospel. You believe and are saved and then you obey. Makes all the difference. Switching two of those around is exceptionally problematic. Paul already told us in Galatians 1 as he opened this thing up, just that slight deviation, that's a false gospel. What we have here is not rivaling denominations under the same umbrella. What we don't have here is a little disagreement over verbiage. What we have here is a true gospel and a false gospel, okay? But you can see, we can understand, can't we, how you could feel like you were saying the same thing. It's real close. That's part of the problem. This isn't just a differing of opinion. It's not close enough because all the same words are used. The order here is of paramount importance. And Paul already laid out in chapter one that anybody who gets that wrong and tries to teach others to get it wrong, should be accursed. Okay? Serious. And that's, I want you to, you know, we study the Bible week by week together, and so there's a break in between, but part of why I keep recapping this thing is Paul, this all goes together. Paul comes in and says, I, I am amazed you guys have so quickly been pulled away from the purity of the gospel that we shared with you right? 
He says, anybody that does that, anybody that preaches a false gospel to you should be accursed. He makes this big statement. He's not, he's not letting it uh, live in the realm of, oh, well, this is just a little misunderstanding. No, 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 no. This is, this is crucial disagreement about the very core of what it means to follow Jesus, okay? And so he makes that big statement, and then he, now what we're reading is support for that. He's making a case to the Galatians to abandon this false gospel that started to come in and lead them astray. And so what does he do first? Do you remember? He goes to his own story. Here's, here's one reason you can know that the gospel that I shared with you is not just of men. It recounts the story of his salvation, what God saved him from and how he saved him on the road to Damascus. And then he moves on from there and talks about the Jerusalem council, how, look, man, we got together and we talked about this. Those that had walked with Jesus and then I, the apostle to the Gentiles that Jesus Christ himself called, we got together and we talked through this. There is no disagreement. We all heard him say the same things. The gospel is grace through faith in Christ alone, okay? And now he's recounting that after they agreed, he's still making an argument to back up his big statements in chapter one. So much so, this is so important. Let me give you guys an example of how important this is. I, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the guy that at this point in the story probably is still more well-known. This is before a lot of his missionary journeys had happened. He's probably still more well-known for who he was before Christ. Fairly infamous brother as a persecutor of the church, right? People knew who Paul was when he rolled around more often by the name of Saul. Okay, so that's his point. I, me, I, this is so important, I was willing to come, I was willing to stand and to say something to Peter about it. The guy that everybody thought was awesome. Peter was the premier apostle, the leader of the apostles, right? Jesus handpicked leader of the 12. And Paul's like, this is important enough, this is a big enough deal, that if it even smells like maybe we're getting close to a deviation from this gospel that Christ gave us. We, get, we got to jump on it and talk about it, even if it's a hard conversation. Amen. All right, that brings us to verse 13. This is another reason why this is a big deal. The rest of the Jews joined him. Okay, so all the rest of the believers that are here in Antioch for this thing, right? The ones who are of Jewish descent, it says, the rest of them joined him in hypocrisy. So not only is Peter now holding himself aloof, afraid of what these, this party of the circumcision is going to do or say, okay? But now the rest who are of Jewish descent are following in his hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So here's what we see. We see a little leaven leavening the whole lump here. It's, there's a reason why even Barnabas is mentioned because Barnabas was one of the... He, was, he called Paul and was like, hey man, we got to get this gospel to the Gentiles. He was the one that was prodding Paul at one point. These guys were ministry partners, probably very close friends, and even Barnabas got pulled into this garbage. That's Paul's point. And so not only is this important because it's this highest possible level gospel issue, uh, there's probably some of this that's personal for Paul as well, Right? Barnabas is his friend. He's getting pulled into deception, right? You see one of your friends getting pulled into deception, man. I hope you love him enough to be ready to roundhouse kick something, right? Amen. N none of you. Okay, good. 
What's a roundhouse kick? Come see me afterwards, I'll show you. I have to stretch first though, a lot. Okay, verse 14. Let's read that again. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, right down to the heart of the issue, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Guys, what I'm trying to set up here is the, 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 <laughs> the reality of how big of a deal this is. This wasn't just a, this wasn't a seating chart issue at the church potluck, okay? That's not, what, that's not the end of the thing. Peter and the rest of the Jewish believers were capitulating to a false gospel. They were giving in to a false gospel. Paul uses this word that they weren't being straightforward about the gospel. The, the idea in that language <clears throat> is the idea of a straight line or a path that should be walked in light of what the gospel teaches. And that's why often we here, we speak of a narrow gospel way that we are called to walk and, and that there's always big gaping ditches on each side which are easy to fall into. Why do we talk about it all the time? Because, because we want you to know, we want you to be prepared for this reality, to buckle up for the reality the gospel narrow path is it's not easy to keep your feet on. There's temptations and confusion and distractions oftentimes trying to pull you to the right and to the left into big gaping ditches welcome to receive you, right? And who have received many, unfortunately. As I, as I said earlier, I, I want to remind you again, okay? You might be th thinking, look, man, okay, I get that you're real amped about this and maybe Paul was, but... I get the gospel, okay? Jesus died for my sins, all right? I know. Well, here's the thing, man. No, you, you probably don't, okay? Because here's what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> that, that straightforward gospel path, right? If Peter, okay, if Peter can stumble towards one of those ditches, you are not immune. Why do I say that? Because in Acts 10, God gave Peter a vision, of a sheet coming down with all these four-footed animals that would have been unclean by kosher requirements. And he tells him, get up, kill and eat. And Peter says, oh Lord, I'd, I've never, I would never eat something unclean. And the Lord says, quit calling unclean what I've called clean. Now, the vision was not about, which Peter wasn't, didn't know until Cornelius showed up. The vision was not really about eating whatever was in the sheet. It was about the fact that for so long the Jews had called and considered all others, the Gentiles, unclean. And God said, that's coming to an end right now. And let me give you an example, Peter, because you're kind of dense sometimes. Immediately, Cornelius, right? Immediately, God's given this vision to this other guy, this Gentile, speaking to him while he's praying and saying, seek out this guy named Peter. He's, he's, he's staying with Simon the Tanner. And so Peter goes, right? And he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his whole household. And in this miraculous, spectacular way, the Holy Spirit falls on all of them and shows everybody there that Peter didn't get a hold of some bad matzah. And that's why he's having visions on the rooftop. Okay? This was God doing this. Here's, here's the principle. Now I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. That the might of my hand and my power to save is not just limited to the people of Israel. This is a worldwide thing. Amen. I hope you're happy about that. There may be a few of you in here that would have made the cut as ethnically Jewish. Praise God for you. <clears throat> I wouldn't have. So I'm pretty glad 
that this thing was for me too. Amen. I hope you are too. Not that any of us deserved it. Jew, Gentile, nobody, right? Okay. Here's, Here's the other thing that I want us to consider that's amazing. So that all happens in Acts 10, okay? Cornelius requests for him to come. Peter goes, preaches the gospel to him. The Holy Spirit falls in this miraculous way. Everybody knows what just happened. These Gentiles just received the Holy Spirit the same way we did. How did it, when did it happen? How did it happen? The, the Bible says, as Peter was just recounting, laying back out to them the events of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it says, as he was speaking, he didn't even get to the end of the sermon. Didn't even, didn't even pray at the end. The Holy Spirit fell. Boom. And it was everybody, everybody, including, it says, some of the Judaizers that were there. There were some, I guess, from this party of the circumcision that were like, ooh, well, can't deny that. But I guess there were some holdouts. Somebody, else, somebody didn't come to this meeting, and this is who we're still dealing with. Because then, that's Acts 10. Then in Acts 11, some of these guys, this party of the circumcision, they show up and they're throwing shade at Peter, right? For the very fact that he went to Cornelius' house, which was a violation of this Jew-Gentile separation. They come in trying to give Peter mouth about it. And Peter's basically like, listen, man, hold on. Let me tell you what just happened. And lays out the whole account of what had just happened in Acts 10. Okay, so what I'm saying is for Peter at this point that we're talking about, he's, it's not like he doesn't know what's up. It's not like he didn't know what was up, that he hasn't seen with his own eyes the manifestation of God's plan to save both Jew and Gentile through the gospel. Okay, he's seen it. He's seen it firsthand. And yet now here we are with him sliding back into this stuff. With all that he had, three years with Jesus, that should have been enough. <laughs> but rooftop vision, experience with Cornelius, already has defended this idea against the party of the circumcision another time. That hold on, man. No, God's saving everybody. It's clear. But now they show up later at this meal and he's, and he's feeling nervous about what they're going to say. And so, look, there's, there's some commentators that paint it like they're, they're sure Peter was actually pulled back into a, a belief like the party of the circumcision. I'm not sure that was the case. It may have just been that Peter thought, let's, you know, let's just have a nice meal and not argue at this one, right? But when, and, and there are times when you should just have a nice meal and not argue at this one, but not when it's first level importance gospel issues. That's what Paul wouldn't stand for, okay? Now, some of us like to turn everything into first level gospel issues. And some of us really like these verses where, where Paul goes to Peter and opposes him to his face. You're like, that's my life verse. I'm about to oppose everybody, right? Can't wait for Thanksgiving because I'm about to get lit up in here, right? Look, if it's a first level gospel issue coming up at Thanksgiving, go ham, call me. I'll, I'll get on speakerphone with you. FaceTime me in, let's, let's rock and roll. But if it's about some of your way down the line, secondary, tertiary issues, right, that, that you tend to elevate to a gospel level falsely, um, then eat your turkey and your cranberry sauce and, and just sh- sh- be quiet, okay? <clears throat> I know there's a turkey shortage. Some of you might, I don't know what we're all going to do, but amen, we'll be fine. Something will happen. Have ham. Ugh. Who likes ham in here? Don't tell me if you like ham. I don't want to think bad about you. All right. Where am I at? Yeah, 
Okay, so Paul, seeing that the purity of the gospel was at stake here, he launches into a powerful defense for it. And he calls out all who were acting afraid to walk it out in plain sight, regardless of who was looking, okay? This, this was a scuffle, man. Like, if they would have had YouTube back in the day, somebody would have popped out the phone, leaned back, and been live streaming this. This was, this was a real deal, okay? The, you know, what was that website back in the day? World Star, where they always catch people fighting? That's, this would have been on that. This was big. It was a big problem. Uh, and it was, there was no punches pulled <laughs> from Paul's side of things. So uh, let's, so the second half of 14, I, I already read that, but let's do it again. If you being a Jew, so, so he's recording that, like, here's what happened, okay? And now, uh, I'm, I'm opposing, this, this was a problem. I had to oppose Cephas. Now we're stepping into what he said. We're getting to hear what his defense was of, and, and why he was so fired up, okay? So second half of verse 14. If you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. So what was he saying there? Paul is basically... He's saying, look, Peter, you, you a Jew, if anybody should be living by these Old Testament requirements, it should be you, a Jew. But you're not, okay? You're not doing that, even though you're of the lineage of Abraham, okay? So how is it then, how, how in the Sam Hades do you think that you're going to now require that of these Gentiles who are not even ethnically Jewish? That doesn't make a bit of sense. So he calls out the foolishness of that right off the bat, Okay? That's really what he's saying in 14 and 15. Verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. He's what he's saying. It, I, it should, I could see how we would be confused as Jews who lived underneath this law for so long, but even we have understood, right? The grace, it, it's coming through Christ. It's coming through faith in him, okay? So that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He's saying even we who were given the law and whose people lived by it, granted, not very often, not very well oftentimes did they live by it, but they were trying, right? They thought that's what was going to save them. We lived by it for hundreds of years, even if we know that no one will be justified by the works of the law. If even we do, then what the heck is going on here, Peter? And part of the issue at hand is confusing two parts of what happens when Christ saves us, and that's justification and sanctification. And that confusion, it continues on to this day. We'll never probably escape it because it is kind of confusing, all right? Here's something important to note. This is the first time in this letter that Paul brings in the word justification, okay? And it's very likely this is the first time he ever wrote it in a letter to any of the churches because there's a great chance Galatians is the first one he wrote. So this is the first occurrence of this idea of justification, this core idea around how we understand what God does in us and for us through Christ. He justifies us. Okay, what does that mean? To be justified in a theological sense is to be declared righteous and righteousness means right standing with God. Okay, he says no one will ever be made right with God based on works of the law or any good works for that matter. 
No one's going to be justified that way. The only way we're going to be justified is by grace through faith. Verse 17, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Let's be honest. That's a little confusing. What is he saying? Let's talk about it. Now remember, this opposition, when Paul speaks up here, he makes clear he did this. So the the leaven is spreading throughout the lump. It's clear that it's not just Peter walking in this hypocrisy, but others are following him. So in Paul's mind, it's not enough at this moment because this, this public deviation from the straightforward truth of the gospel by Peter is now pulling others into that hypocrisy and sin, okay? So we're gonna, we gotta say this to everybody, all right? So he's talking in front of everybody and, 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 and that includes this party of the circumcision that's here. And so Paul, what, what he's doing here already, and this is, you, you'll see this commonly as you read and understand his letters, he's doing what a good preacher does. He's doing what a good evangelist does. He's anticipating a response from them. So his first deal is, hold on, man. If, if even we understand we're not going to be justified by the works of the law, how are you trying to put them back under it? No, we're not doing that. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? But here's the problem. He knows that they're, they're thinking potentially this. In arguing against legalism, Paul knows this, this truth. When, when a legalist hears the pure gospel, they hear someone preaching relativism. And when a relativist hears the pure gospel being preached, they hear someone preaching legalism. Every time. I'm going to define those. The issue here is that the party of the circumcision haven't yet understood that justification and sanctification are two different things. Okay? And I'm going to work on that term even a little bit too. But here's... Here, what is Paul responding to? Paul's responding to this objection that they could make at, at this point, okay? Here's what they would be worried about. All right, okay, Paul, I hear what you're saying. You're talking real bold, but here's a problem with what you're saying. If, if grace through faith in Christ is enough to save us and make us righteous before God, then how do you explain the fact that people are still sinning after believing, right? It's easy for us to think that the only motive of these Judaizers was power, like, control, because, you know, this was like, the law and all of that was like their realm. So if, if that's still required, they're still important. Now, am I saying that wasn't in the mix? I don't know. I, I have no idea. But what I can say is some of this could have been genuine confusion on their part. So that, for them to think, okay, hold on. You're saying the whole thing is grace. The whole thing is faith and trust in Christ. But, so explain this phenomenon to me, Paul. Why are people saying they, they believe and, and, and they've got a profession of faith and yet they're still sinning if, if that's all it takes them to be made righteous before God? Okay, well, that does look like a problem. And that's why Paul's saying, so does that make Christ a minister of sin? Is Christ signing off on all this foolishness? He says, may it never be. How can they be right with God and still imperfect? And I'm gonna give you something, uh, and this is, I don't know, it's big in church history. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't, but Martin Luther summed this difficult reality up with a Latin phrase. It's simul justice et peccator. Simul justice et peccator. Simul is where we get our word simultaneously. Justice, right, is justified et and peccator, sinner. Simultaneously, I am justified and a sinner. It's very important for us to be able to grasp that. Does it make sense at the surface? Nope. 
but it is what the Bible teaches the reality of our condition is. Simultaneously justified and a sinner. Symbol justice et peccator. The harmonious teaching of scripture is that we are justified by grace. That's unearned favor through faith in Christ alone. Justification is not the end, but the beginning of a process of God working in us. He continues to conform us more and more into the image of Christ through a process called sanctification. You'll often hear it called that. I think we could also use the words transformation or confirmation. Okay, why am I saying that? Let's work on these terms a bit here. You may be like, oh, I didn't want to go to a theology class. Where's the application, Pastor Vince? We're getting there. Hold on. But this is important, man, because the book of Galatians just ran us headlong into the, the, the very depths of the gospel, and we need to understand some terms here. It's important. And it's important that this is the first time justification by faith is brought forth uh, in, these, in these kind of debates around the, the true essence of the gospel. So we need to know what's going on here. <clears throat> in, in theological discussions, you will often hear the terms justification and sanctification, the way, the way that I'm using them. <clears throat> what's interesting, though, is that the New Testament, it actually speaks more often as if we are sanctified in Christ already in the same way that we are justified in Christ. So oftentimes, for the sake of theologically trying to understand this, that, that fact that we are simultaneously justified and sinners, people, the categories will be we are positionally justified before God and made righteous by faith alone in Christ, but then there's a process yet to walk out, and that will oftentimes be called sanctification. And that's not wrong, but it can be confusing for you if you start reading your Bible and you see over and over again that the New Testament writers, they'll use that word sanctified or, or sanctification, the language being that we already are, okay? And so the, <clears throat> some will use a distinguishing word to help us with that. They'll talk about either positional or progressive sanctification, okay? Positional sanctification being like uh, being justified, being made righteous, right? Standing with God through faith, right? That we are also sanctified. There's an element in which, and what does sanctified mean? That's, let's stop and do that. It's, it's to be consecrated, to be set apart for God. There's a holiness there, right? So there's this sense in which we are justified, made right before God. We are consecrated and sanctified before God through the work of Christ, through faith and grace, right? But the fullness of our holiness is not until we're glorified. There's still a process to be walked out. And so I'm, I only got into that kind of positional and progressive sanctification because I realized for some of you, I, I'm throwing you in that gospel well that I talked about and it can feel like I didn't give you any floaties and this can get deep, but this is important. And if, if, you're, if you find yourself kind of struggling to swim here, talk about it in community groups, reach out to me. I'm happy to work on it more. I can't take more time to keep thinking of other ways to say it right now, but that's, when it comes to sanctification, we could use the words conformation or, or transformation. That's really what we're talking about. That element of simultaneously we are justified and yet sinners. We have been made righteous before God, but he's not done with us yet, right? Amen. I'm glad he's not done with me. And apparently one other person here is too. They know they still got work to do. The rest of you are feeling real holy at the moment. All right, amen. Uh, so whether you call it sanctification, transformation, or confirmation, the truth is this, okay? In one sense, 
we are made positionally, positionally holy before God by faith. And in another, we are, be, we are being made holy. Okay? And we see that in Colossians 1, starting in verse 9. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard about it, have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power and according to his glorious might for the attaining of all perseverance and patience joyously. Amen. So that's just, that's just one example of where we have, this, we, we have this difficult to grasp dynamic that we are justified and sanctified in one sense by grace through faith in Christ alone, but that the fullness of what God is doing with us is, is not yet done, that we are still being transformed, conformed, being drawn closer and closer, molded into more and more the image of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. So <clears throat> what, what this doesn't look like, it's not that we believe on Jesus to be justified and we get, then we, so we get a clean slate there. Like, okay, Jesus forgave me. I believe that he died in, place, in my place for my sins. And so... Once, once I believe that, I got a clean slate to start over with, but then you, you have to be perfect from then on to keep yourself righteous. That's not what this looks like. We are fully justified and made righteous by faith, and then our obedience to God is a loving response to the miracle that has been done by him in us and for us. That's what the Bible teaches. Not very easy to grab or to keep a hold of when we're working with fallen finite brains. The gospel's deep stuff, okay? And it's easy to slip off that narrow straight path, okay? Our buddy Peter did. Or at least he didn't understand the gravity of the situation that if he even acts like it's okay, if he even acts like it's okay for somebody to maybe possibly think you're gonna have to add something to this gospel in order for people to be saved, the damage that that could do. You can't have it. But this, this whole idea, it, it just does not make natural sense. How can you be righteous in God's sight by faith, but still a sinner? How? Wow, what? Feel your brain short-circuiting, right? The difficulty of wrapping our heads around this is why you so often see the twin thieves of legalism and relativism masquerading as Christianity. Oftentimes you'll see that. What do I mean? Legalism says right standing with God is so cheap. Why am I calling those thieves? Legalism and relativism. This is why. They steal power from the gospel. Legalism says right standing with God is so cheap, you can pay for it with your good works. But your good works are enough currency to get right standing and holiness before God. Whew. Relativism, on the other hand, says right standing with God is so cheap, Nobody has to pay for it. But God should just love and forgive everybody because that's his job. The gospel says that right standing with God is so costly that only the son of God himself could pay for it. He was the only one with the coin that came in the form of his blood that could pay the debt, could pay the price. Justice alone would mean we all suffer the wrath of God for our sin. 
And mercy alone would mean that God is not just at all. But God's justice and God's mercy, they embrace at the cross of Christ where God himself takes the punishment we deserve and offers us the righteousness that only Jesus deserves. Praise God. Verses 18 through 20. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul now turns the tables on those who would claim that he's going soft on sin. Okay, Those that think, The law is the way to keep people out of the devastation that sin causes and how to keep them right before God. They think the law is the way to do that. In verse 18, we see Paul totally flip the tables. I'm going to read it to you one more time. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What the heck does that mean? Here's what he's saying. The greatest sin possible here is to return back into the law as a means of salvation. Of all the sins that you, party of circumcision, are concerned that people might get into if you don't hold them rigidly with the law, right? Whatever you're afraid they might go get into, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever the thing is, right? The greatest possible sin here, the greatest affront to the holiness of God is for you to go back into the law and think that's what's going to save you. That's more devastating than any other trouble they're going to go get into without your restrictions, Amen. Here's the thing, guys. The law isn't bad. It's good. The part of the law, uh, the parts of the law that were not just for Israel, right? For a specific time and purpose. And I'm thinking they're ceremonial laws that had to do with the sacrifices that Jesus fulfilled. We don't need those animal sacrifices anymore. So that part of the law is not relevant to us. Uh, I'm talking about the, the civic elements of the Old Testament law where when God was their only king, Right? Uh, and there was no civil government. They had certain ways to relate to him, and uh, that is not the case now. And so there's certain parts of the, the distinction of Israel in that time and what God was doing with them in the timeline of redemption that doesn't translate. But the, those moral laws, the ones that reflect his character, the ones that are repeated in the New Testament, uh, those, that law is good. <laughs> that law is good. Um, but not because we think that it will save us. That's where the problem comes in. In verse 19, what Paul says, he didn't say the law died. The law didn't die. Paul said he died and we should, right? What does that mean? What does it mean that through the, I, through the law, I died to the law? It's like, okay, Pauline, doublespeak. Thank you. That's hard to understand. What he's saying is until we let the law of God convict us as guilty and worthy of God's wrath, we cannot live to God. It is, it is the law that lets us know we can't do this on our own. Amen. But this is where we mess up, friends. This is where we oftentimes mess up and we slide into moralism more often than we realize probably and more often than we probably like to admit. We even do it with the teachings of Jesus, right? You got the Beatitudes, right? The Sermon on the Mount. Everybody likes the, that's, you know, that's awesome. We can do doilies with the Beatitudes. They're very sweet and nice. Precious moments type stuff, right? Because it says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that sounds really nice. No, what, what is that actually saying? What is the poor in spirit? 
Being poor in spirit knows that you, that means you know you are spiritually bankrupt on your own, right? You, being poor in spirit, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the ones that know they've got no shot without the grace and mercy of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You're not going to hunger and thirst for righteousness if you think you're righteous on your own. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How many, how many fools do I have in here that will raise their hand and say, yep, I'm totally pure in heart all the time? Anybody? Any takers? Please don't, because I want to quit. No, we're not pure in heart all the time. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? The prophet Jeremiah said. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. How many of you are doing great all the time at being a peacemaker? Just a precious, gentle lamb all the time. Never thinking nasty thoughts about other people. It gets even worse. Jump down to verse 20, same chapter. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses, far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Hold on, man. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is precious moments, Jesus teaching time. What's going on? Did you hear what he said? Your righteousness doesn't far surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You're sunk. That's a big call to people that thought. So if you were a scribe or Pharisee and thought you were obeying the law, it's like, uh, okay, I thought I was righteous. Everybody else thinks the, the scribes and the Pharisees are following the law. That's, that is a big old smack in the side of the head, that statement right there. And the whole thing is doing the same thing the Old Testament law was doing. Jesus wasn't giving us a list of things here that, well, here, here's, here's some things for you to do in order to make sure you're right, in right standing with me. Jesus was ratcheting up even further because he goes on from here, friends. You guys, you've, most of you have gone through Matthew 5. Then he, we thought this was hard. Then he starts saying stuff like, well, you've heard it said to love your neighbors and, and to hate your enemies. Well, I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What he's doing is he's ratcheting it up because there's a bunch of people walking around in his day that literally think they're keeping the law. They think they're keeping the whole law and they're going to be righteous by that standard. He's like, well, let me help you with something. You're not. Let's kick it up a notch. Let me start to pull the curtain back on what grace is going to require of us. What you're going to really understand about the nature of God and what it is you're going to be trying to imitate here. What love and selflessness and sacrifice to the deepest degree looks like. Amen. So how does all this work? We, we must let our delusions of self-righteousness be crucified with Christ. We must let our delusions of unworthiness be crucified with Christ. I, I, I didn't forget you guys. I know there's another side to this coin where many of you struggle more than delusions of self-righteousness. It's delusions of unworthiness. We must embrace the truth that our only hope is faith and trust in Christ, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself up for us. And friends, this past tense that Paul used here is, is really important because we can wander from that narrow gospel path if we only ever speak of God loving you in, in the present. I'm not saying that's not true or an important truth, but if we only ever speak of it in those terms, we're gonna miss something. Because God does love you now, that's true, but to say that he loved us, that he loved us, it always points us back to the cross. It points us back to his eternal plan from before time began to create us, knowing that we would rebel and then to save us so that in the end, it could be us and him forever. We can't just think about the fact that God loves me now. We need to remember how he has loved us 
always. Paul's argument here is that the greatest potential sin mankind can commit is to dismiss or cheapen the cross of Christ. It is the only sin that if we persist in it will keep us outside of his power to save. He loved us and he gave himself up for us. And here's what we do when we reject that. I want you to, I want you to use your imagination with me. I know it's hard for us adults sometimes. How many of you have seen the show, uh, the Loki recent series, right? Where they're time traveling and stuff. Okay. How many of you have ever seen a show with a time machine? Let me see your hands. Okay. Now, for the holdouts that all you do is ever read scripture, um, has everyone in here, put your hands in the air. I'm going to look because I'm going to explain what a time machine is if you don't know. Who in here has heard of a time machine and knows what the heck I mean when I say a time machine? You can travel back and forth in time. Everyone's got that concept. Great. Okay. Then my analogy is going to work. Amen. Okay. Here's, here's what we do. I want you to imagine somebody invents a time machine. Okay. And you can get in that thing. And we're going to transport back to the day of the crucifixion. Okay? You're going to get out. You're going to walk up and stand at the foot of Christ's cross as he is hanging there, bleeding out and dying for our sins. That's what I'm asking you to transport yourself to mentally right now. Okay? You're standing before the cross of Christ. Here's, here's my question to you. Would you dare to stand at the foot of the cross? and stare into the blood-soaked face of our Savior and scream, your sacrifice is not enough to save me. Because this is what we do when we try to earn our own righteousness. And we believe the gospel is insufficient to save us. Would you stand at the foot of that cross and have the boldness to scream, at our Savior. Your sacrifice is not sufficient to save them. This is what we do when we pass harsh judgment on others and believe the gospel is insufficient to save them. Would you be so bold as to stand at the foot of that cross looking at the blood-soaked face of your Savior and scream, your sacrifice is unnecessary. This is what we do when we live like relativists, not acknowledging the seriousness of sin and assuming that God can just ignore our many transgressions and we can do whatever we want. But here's what's really interesting, friends. Those same prideful words could come from the mouth of a legalist who thinks they can save themselves. A relativist and a legalist could both stand at the foot of the cross with, with bold foolishness and yell at the Savior, your sacrifice is unnecessary. This is Paul's argument. That's what's happening, Peter. That's what you're giving into. And it's unacceptable. We can't do it. Verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We have to humble ourselves, friends, and know that we are never immune, but we are constantly prone to falling into those false gospel ditches. If Peter, for all the reasons we mentioned earlier, mentioned earlier, if he could struggle with it, right? We need to know, so can we and so do we. Humble acknowledgement around this is right. 
But here's the hope for us, friends. We gotta keep this in mind. As we may feel crushed under the weight of the realization that we often stand at the foot of the cross, hurling those prideful statements at our Savior, maybe not actually, but in the way we live, in the way we think, in our doubt about whether or not we're actually worthy, or our doubt about whether we need his grace. Here's the hope for us. Even though Peter was able to fall this way, the Lord Jesus chose Peter, knowing that all that would happen. And our God is patient and kind, and he is committed to our sanctification, our transformation, our confirmation. He's promised he's going to finish the work that he starts in us, if we will live by faith. By faith in what? In the Son of God, who loved us, who loved us and gave himself for us. I'm still trying to speak hope to you because I know that I've brought us low in the realization of our tendency to be tempted into this greatest of sins, the cheapening of the cross of Christ. But not many years after this confrontation in Antioch that Paul's recording here, not many years after, and right before Peter was killed for refusing to quit preaching about Jesus, he wrote this. Let us find encouragement in it, friends. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May it be. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you. I thank you for the wisdom and discernment of Paul to know that this was an issue of first importance. It's the most important issue that the purity of your gospel is maintained. That we're not allowing these variant versions to come in and to pull away, to steal away power, to steal away glory from what it is you have done for us in Christ. Lord, help us. Help us to be able to recognize this in our own hearts and minds. Help us to recognize when the temptation is there to cheapen one way or the other, the cross of Christ, what it means, what it's done, what it is doing. Thank you, Lord, for the words of Peter that we just read, that we're protected. It's by your power. Lord, we can't maintain all of this ourselves. We can't maintain this straight and narrow, this, this skinny path of gospel truth in our own strength. We need your help. But I thank you, God, that you've brought us to a place of of recognizing that, admitting that, 
And when we come and ask for help to obey you, you never deny. Thank you, Lord, for all of these things. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.